Hello and welcome back to Climate Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment, where we meet with free thinkers, change advocates, academics and experts in the field of climate change, biodiversity loss and all things sustainability. My name is Sean Owens and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Owen Gallivan. Uh, Owen is a clinical psychologist working in adult mental health services for many years. He's a supervising psychologist and a lecturer with doctorates in clinical and counselling psychology at Trinity College Dublin and is a chartered psychologist and associate fellow with the Psychological Society of Ireland. Uh, Owen, delighted you could join us today to talk about some of the psychological thoughts about climate change, how it might affect us and how we might think about climate change. Thanks so much for inviting me on. I'm delighted to, to be here. Um, so I'm a, a clinical psychologist and I work in mental health services in my day job. Um, I never intended, I suppose, to point myself as a psychologist towards the issue of climate change, um, except that it kind of got under my skin. And I, I think the way that it got under my skin was probably more as a, as a parent uh, and maybe just a person in the world who's started paying a bit more attention to what's happening and I suppose the scale and seriousness of what, what's happening kind of got under my skin a bit. And uh, I've been saying to people, I, I spent about 20 years trying to not think about climate change. You know, something would come along and we'd land for a moment and maybe get a bit anxious or think about it a little bit. But then, you know, you'd get on with your day and put it, put it out of your mind. Um, and then something shifted and I, I started to feel things about it. So I started to feel um, upset and distressed and fearful. And uh, that's that terrible sense of dread that something, you know, really of great scale and importance is happening. Um and then I suppose, you know, having gone through a kind of a, a personal reckoning with my own uh, lifestyle to a degree, um, um, started to to notice, I suppose, the uh, the fact that there is a psychology at play in the fact that we are uh, hurtling towards our demise, um, that the uh, that that demise is being caused by us, that we have all most, if not all the solutions to change our trajectory and that we're not and that's quite a thing um so it started to interest me that we're kind of stuck in a sense we're we're, we're caught in a, a dilemma or a series of dilemmas um and that there's a psychology and a, a behavioral reality to that and a social reality to that it's so interesting that you say you started noticing and it makes me think maybe what's happening with climate change is just a mass you hear of mass distraction, but a mass case of not noticing. Um, I mean, the um, windscreen bug uh, experiment that you hear about where nowadays you don't have to clean your windscreen um, because there's uh, so few insects is a, a form of noticing that's happened slowly. Is it all a function of distraction from tech or busy lives, or is that the timeline of nature's decline that has filled us into not noticing or has anyone looked at this and how it's come to pass that this is we've got here there's a number of ideas that might illuminate that what you've pointed at and before i go into a couple of them um there's maybe some contextual things to put in place first because one of the potential risks in looking at the psychology or the psychological reaction to climate change or, or inaction is that we somehow see that as a kind of an explanation for our inaction that you know it's because of, of 
pesky cognitive biases that we're not responding. But I, I think it's really important to put us put ourselves, the individual psychological lives that we carry around in context, because that context is extraordinarily important. So things like our colonial history and our current economics, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism, um, consumerism, the, these things are enormously powerful shapers on how we live our lives and interact with the natural world. And there's great depth in terms of how they have socialized and habituated us into certain ways of thinking and behaving. And those are the contexts out of which the psychological phenomenon that we might talk about are in. And arguably, those things are more powerful ingredients, if you wanted levers to push at, yes. um, than the individual psychology. But that's another kind of debate is, is kind of looking at the system versus individual stuff. Um, but when we do zone in on the individual, you have things like, um, I suppose, kind of the bystander effect, this idea that, you know, uh, we hear about these emergencies um, and, you know, the most serious emergency that has ever encountered, that we've ever encountered as a species, the most, the greatest of all challenges um, with the most threat to the most people um, by the most credible scientific bodies on the planet. Mm. And at the same time, uh, we are highly influenced by the behavior of the people around us in our, in our immediate lives. So when we hear these things like the UN saying the world is we're you know secure um, uh, on on track towards an unlivable world, um, which is quite a thing to say, and that's a consensus yeah. statement, so it had to go through a layer of diplomacy as well. You listen to the individual scientists, and they're saying things much more loudly, um, but that's their statement that we're firmly on track towards an unlivable world, and yet we're not responding. And and part of that not responding might be to do with the fact that. When we look around and we see everyone getting in their cars and flying on their holidays and eating their burgers and steaks and heating their home with oil and gas, you know, not changing and acting as if this isn't an issue, it provides us with a kind of confirmation that actually things aren't that serious and we can kind of let the message slip on past us uh, because no one else is responding as an emergency. Well, it mustn't be an emergency. And, and that's just one idea. There's, there's loads of notions, um, things like the shifting baseline effect. So it's such a gradual change that happens over time. It's not really something that we notice. It changes so slowly um, that we might say, oh, I remember back when I was a kid, there was loads of insects on the window and it's not there now. Yeah. Whereas if it happens suddenly, you know, this idea of an abrupt change um, actually is an acronym that a, a psychologist in the US uses to describe the nature of changes that make us react um, and the acronym is pain so is it personal abrupt immoral and happening now um, so if things are personal they're happening to me if it's an abrupt change you know there's a very short time frame like covid maybe if it's immoral if there's a bad actor in it and we can point out and like you know putin invading ukraine and we say there's a bad person that makes us react and if it's happening right now so if those things are happening um, we tend to react Climate change can be seen as if it's none of those things. It, it kind of is those things, but it's easy to perceive as, as if it's not. So it's easy to perceive if it's not to do with me, it's to do with people in Pakistan or it's to do with the polar bears, so it's not to do with me. It's easy to perceive as if it's not abrupt. These long-term changes, things like droughts occurring, where the, the evidence of the change happens over years rather than over minutes or, or a couple of days um, it's hard to find the bad guy because we're all kind of implicit. So it diffuses the sense of responsibility 
and it's a little bit murky where the responsibility lies. Mm -hmm. And it may not feel like it's happening right now. My house isn't flooding right now. It is happening right now to some people, of course, but for us in Ireland, typically right now. So when you have things of that nature, it's easy for us to just allow the information slip past us. And, you know, we're busy and we get on with our day. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because uh, the finger is usually pointed towards the media. Ever it feels this way that the media is to blame for A, B and C, but... Is there a case that maybe they're a reflection of what we want to see? I mean, can they program, uh, as you say, the most important event that's ever happened to all of our species all at once, um, night after night? And perhaps people want the Kardashians that little bit more, you know, it's that maybe that's the inbuilt um, psychological tick that we have. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, um, you mentioned some of these huge societal drivers, you know, capitalism and consumerism. I guess you can't just turn them off. You can't choose not to be a consumer um, at present. Um, where is the challenge then in terms of the macro drivers and the and the personal drivers um, as you see it? I mean, how do you kind of figure this out cognitively from how you act? Yeah. Um, and really, a really um, important question is this relationship between the individual and the system um and actually i think the media is a really important uh mediator between those two things and i do think the media needs to do a much much better job it needs to figure out itself both in terms of education and a way of communicating about the climate crisis and there's a a media leader in this called wolfgang blau who has started working on guidelines about how, and he's articulated the challenges that media face um, because climate change in a way isn't news as we typically think of it. You know, it was here yesterday, last year, 20 years ago, it'll be here tomorrow, the next week and in 20 years time. So it's kind of happening all the time. Therefore, it's not really news of the day. Climate shocks are, you know, the flood that happens mm -hmm. is a news event. But the fact that, you know, there's a slow tick up in carbon in the atmosphere is a, is presents a challenge in a sense to how media normally thinks and communicates. But that's a challenge that needs to be faced into. Um, and it's a key component of our uh, inertia is the way that we, and I mean we, the broader society, is communicating or not communicating about this to ourselves. You know, we're not telling each other what we need to know and educating each other and um, we need political communication in that too, of course. The most powerful communicators in the country are at best ambivalent about the issue of climate change um, with very mixed messages coming out from different political parties, et cetera. So there's a whole communication realm there. And if you compare that to what happened during COVID, it's the exact opposite. We had this incredibly clear, um, ever-present series of um, communications um, you, I mean, it was really hard to not know what was going on about COVID. The exact opposite tr is true with climate. It's very easy to not know what's going on around climate. It's kind of hidden away in newspapers or, you know, on a certain section of the, um, the news websites. It's not put front and center with the most powerful speakers in the country, Taoiseach, et cetera, giving it its due weight over time. Therefore, it's very easy to kind of treat it almost like a lifestyle issue or something that, you know, just isn't that important. And of course, we know it's exceptionally important. 
Uh, going back to the the notion of the um, the individual in the system, um, there's there's a reasonable hypothesis about um, the kind of business as usual, you know, big business and fossil fuel companies and et cetera, quite liking the idea that climate change is down to us consumers changing our consumer behavior. But the environment within which we are living makes that almost entirely impossible. It's it's simply not possible to exist in our modern Western culture and not contribute to the problem of climate change. So that pre presents a kind of psychological dilemma for us because we're participants in it. We are um, adding to the problem in the way that we live our lives. And we perceive ourselves quite rightly in a sense to be really knotted up in this. It was very hard. We can't just wake up one morning and flick a switch and suddenly live an entirely sustainable existence. Uh, in order for that to be true, we would have to live in a world that promotes sustainability at a very high level. So for example, when you go to the supermarket and you're buying your weekly shopping, it should be hard to buy things that damage the planet, not really easy. And rather than leaving it down to what individual consumers feel like, there's this kind of internal battle life, I feel terrible about buying this and the air miles on that and the plastic wrapping on this and it's a constant set of dilemmas. Everything before it goes into a supermarket should go through a filter of, you know, sustainability or some kind of tax or something that means that it's much, much easier to buy stuff that is healthy for us and the planet and much harder to buy stuff that's unhealthy for us and the planet. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you, when you get into the, climate activist space or you start to kind of engage with it you suddenly realize you're swimming against the tide in terms of the social pressures that are there to keep people um, consuming certain things living a life in a certain way advertising everything is pushing us towards um, a fossil fuel based carbon high carbon based lifestyles uh, so in a way i've a lot of compassion for people finding themselves stuck and kind of going how am i supposed to get out of this yeah. is it's a, it's a real dilemma i wonder so i mean is there a benefit to making some of these unconscious biases that we've kind of alluded to or bringing to the surface the challenges that you know we are very much as you say swimming upstream does that help i mean if we're still stuck in it um i guess it's better to know but um I, I think it does. Uh, if, if we if we move the premise of the question just a little bit to include the notion of eco distress or climate anxiety, um, which is a common experience amongst people who start paying attention. So if you pay attention to the climate crisis, the normal human response to that is a degree of anxiety or distress. Uh, that's what happens when you realize that we're on track towards an unlivable world and food system might might collapse and economies might collapse and societies might collapse and hundreds of millions of people are at risk of being displaced or dying from famine or drought uh, you know what's the normal human response to that reality it's an exceptionally painful thing mm -hmm. to be conscious of so when we have that in mind uh, does knowing that we are stuck and trapped and that we're and knowing our minds in this help us in a way in that i, th I think it does it also can inform the notion of how do we deal with when we experience that? You know, what are we supposed to do? Um, and part of what we need to do is unhook ourselves from that those very powerful forces that are keeping us in a particular uh, lifestyle and, and frame of mind. 
And in order to do that, we need to know our minds and we need to support each other um, in kind of navigating a journey out of an unprocessed distress, which can lead to shutdown or apathy or doomism or nihilism, you know, going into that really dark space where you think, God, we're, we're absolutely screwed and everything's ruined. And, you know, that's, I'm just going to put my head under the covers and I can't even look at it. It's so awful. Um, and, and people, you know, genuinely get stuck in that space. The opposite side of that, if you want, is a more conscious um, and purposeful engagement with the emotional reality that's evoked. Um, and seeing that as a kind of energy or fuel for uh, whether it's climate activism or taking some kind of action or even just minding ourselves you know, kind of knowing this is what's occurring internally. How do I mind myself today um, as a human being? What do I need? Rather than trying to push it away, which I think our lives kind of force us to <clears throat> to, to over-rely on, kind of, kind of denial. Mm -hmm. I know this is occurring, but it's so kind of difficult. I, I can't tolerate it and I'm busy, so I just push it away. Um, it's it, There's something really important about knowing how our minds are reacting in this as part of a communication maybe with other people um I, I certainly know that when when i share the experience of being distressed or anxious about the the climate crisis um i've been surprised at how many people uh have kind of opened up and said yeah me too yeah. and but when it when you start talking about it you kind of feel like jesus am i going to be how am i going to be seen when i say this you know, what are people going to think or say so there's, I, I think there is something really important about having a sense of how we might be stuck and um, bedeviled a little bit by our own minds, but maybe more importantly, uh, that sense of we're we're trapped in a much bigger system that needs to change. And I think that's the energy out of which that kind of systems change, not climate change, comes from, is that, that recognition that there's a, a much bigger kind of system at play or systems at play. And these are the things that need to shift when you do have that shift, by the way, so when COVID happened, sorry, I go back to COVID because it's such a good example. Sure. And, yeah. and everyone kind of can think of it. when COVID happened, we didn't have any problem with the bystander effect or cognitive biases or shifting baselines or we didn't, none of, none of our innate psychology got in the way. Now we have to ask ourselves why, why was that? Um, there was, there was a threat and then there was this incredibly powerful political and social and media driven communication about it um, that helped us organize ourselves in a way that protected uh, from this threat and we don't have that um, so i think we need to look to systems communication as a missing part of the picture as to why we're not moving rather than saying it's uh, it's individuals who are thinking wrongly about this um, I think that's an error and it, it kind of go, it buys into the idea of we are um, individually choosing to consume ourselves to death and kind of taking the, the lens away from big corporations uh, or political um, power, which is where all the energy for change could could come from. You know, it's, it's just actually brought something to my mind um, at the COP27, COP26, that there's always the um, big corporations you speak to in the building with the lanyards, with the gold passes, you know, and with the policymakers. And outside, there's usually a rally 
or, or many rallies with indigenous communities. And I feel even as people who are interested in um, with the climate crisis and the biodiversity um, free for all, you know, should we be, uh, are we as guilty as anyone of not engaging with um, those communities who have technologies that I think sometimes are called primitive, but um, ways of living that maybe put values, not just in previous generations, but future generations um, and in you know values in things like water and air through stories. And by giving them value, in everyday life, they they notice the, the thing we talked about at the very start of it. Should we be paying a bit more attention and asking not just for their advice, but maybe um, reckoning with our post-colonial history, as you said earlier on? Is there a body of work to talk to our uh, indigenous colleagues around the world? Or or close to home, because mm. we, we too were an indigenous community that was colonialized, colonized and our natural, uh, and this is not to kind of um, glorify our past too much or anything like that. Um, but, you know, this, Ireland used to be a woodland essentially, and the people that lived there would have lived, you know, in that environment. Um, and over time, through various kind of um, political and, you know, you know, we were colonized, et cetera, et cetera. And then through ag mass agriculture, all of that has been kind of lost. So we, in a sense, have lost our touch with our indigenousness to a degree. So we identify with the the, the modern Western um, culture. I think you're absolutely right. And it, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of um, inflection in this for us as human beings that we we have become socialized into thinking of ourselves as consumers and living in a modern world and driving cars and flying on planes and you know building things in certain ways eating food in certain ways relating to the world the, the environment in certain ways that is exceptionally dangerous now to our existence and yet it also feels entirely familiar and normal and that's a real dilemma for us because when we look at indigenous communities in the Amazon, for example, and we think, God, isn't it terrible that their, their forest is being chopped down and you know, their home is being chopped down? We're, we're kind of ignoring that that's us too. Yeah. You know, our indigenousness, uh, excuse my, uh, in, our kind of relationship with our natural environment has been very badly damaged. Um, so there's something about coming home to ourselves in our own environment. And there are there are people in Ireland who are um, leading us in this and who can show us how to do that. Um, and people who are who are like people like Owen Dalton. I don't know if you've uh, seen his book. The yeah yeah I've read it yeah Rainforest is a kind of a modern example of a person shifting gears back to something and and rediscovering the value, the incredible value, and the um, the fundamental value and the the non-consumable value um or the the it shouldn't be consumed value i should say that our survival as a species is enhanced bettered and it's required to have a healthy ecosystem around us and we, we're so far from that we don't even know it's gone 
and that's an extraordinary thing that the the trauma of a people who once were a woodland people who suddenly aren't or not suddenly who've become dislocated from that you know our identity is now as modern europeans and you know um tech workers and healthcare workers and industry and all of these things which have validity in our current context i'm not down in them they just are um but but very little of what we how we live is ecologically attuned and i can i'm i'm not judging that i'm absolutely caught up in that you know i, I grew up in a suburban middle class neighborhood i was very lucky in that sense um and while I had some of the natural world around me, it was a place that you went to, to visit, to feel good. It wasn't something that I was taught to relate to as if it was essential to my own well-being. It's kind of out there. Mm-hmm. And we've really lost that, haven't we? We've lost touch with something. For sure. Um, and it's hard to engineer it back in. But my, my take from Owen's work is that he still lives in a warm house and has clean clothes. It's you know living with a restored ecosystem need not be a loss. And I suppose there's all this evolving evidence that it's got all of these benefits physically and mentally. Um, and I think that's, uh, it can be a hard sell until you see that um, needn't be that way. Needn't be that way. Yeah, well, we're very lost, aren't we? I mean, if there, if there was ever a need for leadership, um, to re- reconnect with things and rebuild our world to a sustainable way. But the, I mean, there's a there's a project in um, Maynooth that's led by uh, Tyg McIntyre. He's an, educa- uh, an environmental psychologist called Go Green Roots. Um, that's a, a European EU funded wide um, study looking at introducing uh, green spaces to European cities. I think there's six or maybe more. Sorry, I've forgotten the actual details. Uh, cities that are introducing green spaces so there there is uh, momentum and activity in in areas where people are really diligently looking at how do we if you look at barcelona for example i don't know if you've read about that where they've kind of cordoned out area off areas um paris looking to become a 15-minute city pushing cars away um almost completely from huge areas in the middle of their um city um, th- there's a lot of things happening and maybe the base, the, the shifting baseline effect um, happens with progress as it does with damage that we almost don't notice it because it's kind yes. of happening slowly bit by bit. But when you gather it all up together, you realize, hold on here, there's a lot of people actually doing a lot of work pushing us in the direction, not as much as is needed. Um, we're, we're by no means out of the woods. I don't mean to to downplay and there's always this sense don't give me hope now because it's it's still really serious but there is a momentum um and it's building i think i just wonder you know it's really interesting um especially if you're engaged with climate to start thinking about some of these um behavioral traps or um, cognitive um uh, plays that um you know uh, like how we don't like losses so maybe let's not speak to them or um whatever it might be but are we too late to the game because the food industry, the alcohol industry, the automobile industry, they're all, they've known this for some time. They know when we're when we're weak and when we're hungry and stressed, that's the time to sell. They know how to appeal to our um, the devil on our shoulder. Um, are we 40 years behind in terms of the uh, behavioral data about how to engage with this? Is it, is it a level playing field, Owen? 
uh, I would say we just need to turn all that knowledge and point it in a different direction. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, marketing and advertising was invented to shape behavior in a particular way. Um, so, so people who are very good at selling things are very good at um, shaping particular behavior. And there, there has already been a lot of efforts to, to look at how to, you know, shape uh, pro-environmental behavioral change through nudging and all these other kind of the behavioral e economics kind of world um, that that kind of um, allows for the, the reality that we will avoid a short-term loss, even if it means something much worse in the future in favor of um, a gain right now. Um, but we can turn that uh, and, and the kind of behavioral technology, if you want, is there for that. Um, again, what's missing is a kind of a top-down governmental frame that shifts companies so that they it's it's easier for them to do the right thing, therefore making it easier for consumers to do, do the right thing. So um, a good example was the SEAI grants around retrofitting, um, which albeit a relatively small thing in the big scheme of things, is a very positive move and had some real traction. So apparently when they put that up on their website, when that scheme opened, their website crashed the next day, um, reflecting the very high level of concern and willingness to do the right thing. I think if you give people the option to do the right thing, they'll move in that direction. You make it possible and straightforward for them. Um, so if we do that, if we if we make it such that it's easier for businesses and companies and services to do things in a sustainable way. And we and, and you, there's a financial reality and a tax reality that can be brought to bear to shape that. It's not that difficult to do. You know, we're, we already know how to do this in one direction, we're just doing another. Um, you will get behavioral change. There's absolutely no, no question about it. Um, it what, what, what is fascinating from a psychological point of view is that the people who are keeping their foot on the accelerator um, may be willing to drive us right off the edge of a cliff uh, and or engaging in delay and denial. Those people are also subject to the consequences of climate change. Their children are also subject to the consequences of climate change. There's a um, an interesting phenomenon at play where some people seem to behave as if they are somehow uh, immune. Um, one psychologist in the, in the UK calls it a, a sense of exceptionalism, yeah. perhaps because of money or power or influence that you've gotten to a point where you think you can, you're somehow separate from all of this stuff. This kind of pulling up the drawbridge or the ladder after you and um, them and us perhaps, and maybe they're conditioned to feel that way. I don't know. It is certainly, um, yeah, it's fascinating to think about that. Yeah, the conundrum. And those people are all subject to all of the same psychological struggles that we all are. You know, th this yeah. is such a, um, there's a philosopher called Timothy Morton who, Morton who refers to it as a hyper object, climate change. And that's something that is of such scale and complexity that it's impossible to keep in our minds um, for any length of time. So as soon as we start to try and think about climate change, it becomes hundred things instead of one thing 
And those things are poorly organized in our minds. They're poorly organized in the field of knowledge that we have and our communications and how we talk and communicate about it. So it's very, very difficult to stay focused on it and get through to the point of, okay, therefore I'm going to change this consuming behavior or I'm going to engage in climate action. And it's much easier for it to bounce away. Um, and we, we, we really don't like uncertainty. Mm -hmm. We don't like unpredictability. Um, and climate change is both of those things. It's full of uncertainty and full of unpredictability in some ways. Um, that's not to say that the science is uncertain. It's not. We're in serious trouble. We are creating climate change, um, global warming. It is a massive problem for us, and there are things we can do to change it. There's no lack of clarity there. But when you start, uh, when you ask people about it, the uncertainty is, well, if I go to the supermarket and I buy this packet of rashers, is that worse than buying the pears that came from Argentina? Um, and they've got plastic on it, and these this one doesn't. So, um, um, do I have do I need a degree in science to answer the question? We've made it very hard for people to make clear decisions. You know, this is one of the things that I think we could get a huge amount of traction with in terms of the psychology um, and kind of behavioral engagement. Is if we were to tell people not only the seriousness of it, but also what to do and what the most important things are to do. Um, the equivalent would have been, let's say COVID is coming along and you hear it on the news. There's this disease coming along that's going to kill loads of people. And now we'll go to sports. And yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's um, Patty, Patty it. <laughs> right, with no sense of this is what you do, this is how you protect yourself. And, you know, it's put into the health section of the newspaper instead of being on the 6-1 news. Um, so in the, in a way, climate change communication should be that the world is warming up. We're causing all these problems and here's what you should do. And the government are saying it and the government are incentivizing it and the government are supporting it. So, okay, I get it now. This is not something I can turn away from. Whereas at the moment, it's just really, it's too easy to let it slide by. It was all that sort of give us don't look up, you know, which was, um, such a dark <laughs> riot of a comedy, but, um, I mean, it was right there. Um, could one of the low-tech solutions that we could all do, and I, I heard this bounced around, Earth Day uh, was a climate cuppa, so that it's not relying on um, your national media to relay this information, but it's someone you know, someone you trust. Uh, it could be someone who's older, somewhere younger. It could be you know your, your children or people in your children's class telling you about the importance of biodiversity, climate, and so forth over a cup of tea space for communities to talk and engage about this so it's um I mean, is that a low-tech solution that we should be maybe um playing with a little bit more on yes but not as an alternative to high level political communication so i think we're left with that as a viable important thing to do in the absence of mm -hmm. uh, you know kind of much more focused communication from uh, uh, through politics and the media on a, on a related angle to that what I think that kind of space is so important for is that when people do engage with the issue of climate change and they experience distress or anxiety or concern or worry or whatever it might be having people to go to and talk it talk it out with is really important particularly people who've been in it for a while so my first instinct when I first got kind of engage with this at a more kind of emotional level was to find others 
Um, and their their sense of being able to be calm while talking about it was incredibly important to me because I was freaking out. Um, so being able to find people who can help you regulate your thinking and your feelings about it is really important. There's also some really interesting work about um, community resilience. Uh, there's a researcher in the States called Aldrich um, who looked at the, uh, the notion of social capital versus wealth capital and which is more important in the face of climate shocks, um, highlighting that actually social capital in certain circumstances is more important to a community than wealth. In other words, uh, being close to the neighbor next door and having goodwill with the person down the road um, and you know knowing people as a, as a kind of resource almost is more important for helping communities um, get through, uh, be resilient to climate shocks than having money. You know, money's no good if you can't go down the shop and buy something because mm -hmm. the shop's closed because it's been flooded. You know, who do you turn to? You, know, you have to turn to the person next door. So that, that idea of coming together and having a space where we talk and think um, is, is maybe as important as a resource for supporting each other as much as it might be as a, as a means of persuading people about what's occurring, um, which is tricky territory. I'm sure you've had experiences where you, you bring it up and you know, it's interesting how people react sometimes. It's a great way to clear a room sometimes. It's a it's a flip of what you um, opened with that climate change is so many different things happening all at once. So ergo the solutions have to be many levers pulled all at once, and certainly the high level ones for sure. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I guess it can get it can feel um, it can feel a little bit down when uh, you realize we're still at a mass education stage in this game um i guess there's better never been better awareness but um uh do you feel that there's this dunning kruger effect where you feel like you're engaged with climate and you feel like you know what the problems are and the closer you look then you realize the less you know and the more there is to know and mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like it's a lifetime's um work to get your arms around this hyper object Yes and no. And I, I, I go through, I oscillate um, through periods of, because some things are fairly straightforward, aren't they? You know, and you, you kind of land in a space and think, okay, I'm going to sort out diet. Um, and, you know, I'm on a journey with that and some low hanging fruit. Maybe I just eat a bit less dairy and eat a bit less red meat. That's a fairly straightforward thing that mm -hmm. kind of most of us could do without too much of a big shift in our, in our life. And then there's really complicated stuff like, you know, that things like, well, if I'm going to change um, the carbon footprint of my home um, and how I heat my home, um, do I have to go through this whole assessment to get the house kind of checked and seeing what its energy rating is? And should I do the insulation or the windows or the heat pump? Or, you know, that's a much messier kind of a creature to wrestle with. And then there's, well, how do I get the world to pay attention to stuff when I'm, you know, freaking out and no one else seems to be caring about it, which again is another thing. It depends on what we're kind of talking about. Um, I, I really like the idea that if we come together in and, and embrace the idea of uncertainty and creativity and bravery and uh, you know leaning on values that we've demonstrated a lot in some ways recently with COVID, things like sense of shared purpose and 
you know, the endeavor to keep ourselves well and safe um, and act on each other's behalf, that if we draw on those qualities, that we can meet whatever the confusions and challenges are. So that there's something, and you know, that's not bad stuff. Um, <laughs> so enhancing community and get, you know, kind of building up relationships around this stuff will never be a bad thing. And it's always something we can do. You know, there's a simplicity to some of this that's um, quite reassuring in a way. For sure. You know, the climate cup of tea is, you know, this idea of the climate cafe. And interestingly, the climate cafes have a rule in some of them that you're not allowed to have a call to action. So they're just a space to nurture relationships within which we can share the journey and tolerate the anxiety, uh, hold the distress, kind of think together about what's occurring. And that's incredibly important for us because, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, that idea that we're um, COVID in a way was a short, sharp shock to our society. And we all kind of steeled ourselves to it and got through it. This is going to be way different in terms of the, the version of solutions that we have to, we have to completely reinvent the way that we're living our lifestyles. Um, and there's some quite deep parts to that journey. Uh, an unraveling of our connections to capitalism and consumerism, a reconnecting to other ways of living that maybe we've lost, like we were talking about earlier, reconnecting to the natural world, um, maybe rearticulating a value base in society that is more about shared common good rather than pursuing wealth, for example. Um, and how do we bring that and make it feel new again rather than relying on older versions that might feel stale? Would one solution be, Owen, for a, a, a national climate cafe where you are constantly on the end of a phone to reassure, reassure everyone? So I feel so reassured uh, just talking some of these um, issues out. Um, would you be up for donating all of your time to be <laughs> awake 24 hours a day to, to talk out um, the... <laughs> An interesting double bind in, in your request. It's it's at once really, really complimentary and thank you and yeah. stay awake all the time. <laughs> um, I, well, no, but <laughs> I do think... I'll find someone who will. <laughs> I, do, I do think there's something important about... Um, like the, the really surprising thing to me about this journey has been how important the coming together with others is as part of our response to climate change. And I wasn't anticipating that. You know, you, you kind of, you, you learn about it and you, you, it freaks you out and you kind of go, oh my God. In a way it can make you pull back from people. Um, you're worried about how you look. If you start talking about it, you're, you're worried about um, relying on others. You suddenly feel quite vulnerable. Um, so what's been really encouraging in a sense is that when I did lean into the conversations with other people, it's been extraordinary how welcoming other people are and how how there's this huge network of people now growing, not only in Ireland, but all across the world with literally millions of people joining um, climate movements in every country on the earth to come together and explore ways of living more sustainably. And when you get your head clued into that space, well, that's actually quite encouraging, isn't it? That's, sure. yeah. you know, maybe the next 
chapter of the human journey can have an exceptionally positive um, direction. Well, it's so reassuring and, and really positive to hear that that next chapter could be one about yeah, rediscovering ourselves, uh, a really human chapter, as opposed to looking towards tech. Tech will deliver um, A, B or C, but um, I think that gives me hope for sure. And it's always nice to leave these conversations with hope, Owen. And certainly you have um, so many different facets to, um, to this. Would you point any of the listeners to um, some of the work that you're doing at present? Um, you mentioned a few um, thought leaders uh, in this domain or um, if you're if you're interested in um, the behavioral aspect and the mental health aspect of climate change, where would you point uh, people to? Yeah, well, you can at uh, the Psychological Society of Ireland, our, our group is up on their website um, as a starting point. Um, and any of the people I've mentioned, uh, I'll email them on. Maybe you can kind of tag the links sure. in social media. Um, in terms of um, the climate anxiety stuff, there's uh, a person by the name of Britt Way who uh, has a website called Generation Dread. Um, and I think she's a really a real force for good in articulating both the anxiety and the human struggle. Um, there's also um, an absolutely wonderful person called Joanna Macy, um, who's written a book called Act of Hope. And she has a kind of a mindfulness um, spiritual um, aspect to her approach, which again is um, almost like um, providing us with a frame in which to encounter the real, really difficult stuff, but at the same time holding uh, our potential to, you know, bravely meet this head on and uh, bring the best out of ourselves at the same time. So we just need to find a way, Owen, that we flip that this isn't your pastime, that, you know, working on your borrowed hours from sleep and family and leisure. I mean, this has got to be... Um, your day job really <laughs> by by rights um thank you so much for talking to, uh, to climate conversations and sharing your thoughts they're um uh, they're so interesting and well informed and um yeah i really have learned uh, an incredible amount and feel reassured at the same time is um is uh is really something thank you so much Owen. you're very welcome